0: Motherhood gave us new superpowers, and that we could be caring and ambitious. We could be strong and nurturing. And we wanted to really give a much more holistic approach to that that was woman centered, evidence based, and expert driven, and ultimately empowering.
1: Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jill Koziel, co-founder and CEO of Motherly. Motherly is a woman-centered parenting platform providing evidence-based and expert-driven information to empower mothers. Jill talks about how women start to rapidly consume information when they get pregnant and how Motherly provides resources from conception to college. I love how her father's influence as an entrepreneur inspired her and how her experience as a military spouse drove her company's flexibility. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jill, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here.
1: I'm really excited to talk about your company. And so let us tell our listeners exactly what you do. So you're the co-founder and CEO of Motherly, which you started in 2015. And the mission is to redefine what it means to be motherly. So right there, I am super intrigued. So tell us what Motherly is and how your initial idea has really taken life over so
0: many years. Absolutely. Motherly is a well being destination that is empowering mothers to thrive. So we engage about 30 million women every single month, helping guide them from trying to conceive all the way at this point up to about elementary school age, but ultimately see ourselves as conception to college. My co-founder Liz and I founded Motherly in 2015 because it didn't exist and because we felt like there were so many misconceptions about what it meant to be a modern mother back in 2015. And we knew that there was this tsunami of parents that were millennials that were about to become parents that were digitally native, super educated and very diverse. And we wanted to truly redefine what it meant to be motherly. The definition is to be nurturing and caring, and it really connoted this like martyrism approach to motherhood. And our lived experience was that motherhood gave us new superpowers and that we could be caring and ambitious. We could be strong and nurturing. And we wanted to really give a much more holistic approach to that that was woman-centered, evidence-based and expert-driven, and ultimately empowering.
1: I love that. And I'm trying to think back to 2015, what my thoughts of being a mother was. I was a mother by then, but certainly they have changed and definitely they have changed through the pandemic. So you have a lot of people who come to the platform. Tell us who the audience is. Mothers of all ages, fathers even. Who do you actually talk to?
0: So we're definitely engaging mothers primarily, although there are a lot of supporters and other caregivers, whether they be grandmothers or aunts or teachers or fathers that are also involved. But we're certainly targeting, and we exist to support mothers as they navigate this journey. We are primarily U.S. based, but because we are non-judgmental and empowering, we cross cultural boundaries. So we also have seen a lot of growth internationally as well. And unlike a lot of other media destinations and the such, Motherly is not just around for the coast mom. We really are there empowering all moms from all different walks of life. We look at our spread of our audience and see it really across the entire country.
1: So I totally understand the perceptions of mothers changing for sure and wanting to address that change. How did you also think about addressing gaps in the market when it came to content or other tools? And what did you think you were going to start out with and how did that build into so many other channels?
0: I come from a consulting background, strategy consulting, and did a lot of work in the intelligence community. My approach to looking at this white space and in this challenge was to not look at trends, but to really look at drivers of change and leveraging a design thinking approach that got out from behind myself and my own identity as a mom, but was really obsessed with this end user and building for them, knowing that my lived experience as a mother is not necessarily representative of all mothers. And so we've always been really obsessed with data and looking at drivers of change. And there were really three. One is that this millennial Millennial generation that was just coming of age and having children in 2015, they were the first generation in history to be digital natives when they become parents, and so that shifted the dynamics and created this white space where legacy brands were not speaking to them in a way that really resonated, that was authentic. No one was delivering bite-sized content in a way that they were used to engaging with content. It was either super academic and medical, or it was race to the bottom user-generated content, and so that was one. The second was that this generation, millennials, is the first generation in which women are more educated than men. This shifts everything. It means that this woman is super educated and looking for evidence-based, expert-driven information. She's also tends to be having children later in life, has a career. She is very nervous beyond the health and well-being of her child. She is very nervous about what does this do with her identity? What does this mean for her? How does she not lose herself in motherhood? And the third is that we knew, based on demographic trends, that this was going to be the generation that shifted the demographics in the U.S. where now, since 2018, the majority of children in this country are are minorities that are born and so we knew that this generation was giving birth to the most diverse generation in history. And so what we built Motherly to be our voice and our brand, which I think is the really unique differentiator for us in the space, is that we are woman-centered, not baby-centered. That is a massive differentiation that is both nuanced and very explicit. And the second is that, again, we are evidence-based and expert-driven. We are not a race to the bottom when it comes to content. We are trusted. And then lastly, as I said, we are empowering and non-judgmental. We believe that this woman, we're here to educate and inform and inspire. But ultimately, she needs to learn to trust her gut on what's right for her and her family. I could have really used this when my first kids were born.
1: So I'm fascinated by the topics that mothers are most drawn to. What are the resources that you find are in most demand? What are they clicking on and really absorbing content-wise?
0: Because this generation and Gen Z is following the same trends here, is so educated and largely in the workforce and putting off parenthood for a bit longer, they're planning these pregnancies. And so the first time that a woman really starts to give true thought to what goes in and on her body is when she's trying to conceive. It's when she really starts to become an architect of health for herself and ultimately for her family. And so that trying to conceive pregnancy in that first year of life is when a woman is a mother, is the most voracious consumer of information. A, she's got a little more time during that time period to be consuming information, but it's when she needs it the most, wants to do better than anything she's done in her life. Our persona of sorts is this ambitious driven woman who is launching into something that really, really matters to her. And she wants to get it right. She's definitely deeply engaged with content and our community at that stage, but then she gets brand lock-in with Motherly. She's learned to trust us. And so we are guiding her through all of the other milestones of motherhood and parenthood.
1: Did you see certain information or parts of the website really pop during the pandemic when people were looking for health on COVID, mental health resources? Tell me about that period.
0: The pandemic was such a challenging time for mothers. I think everyone is well aware that mothers disproportionately bore the brunt of the pandemic. It brought especially working mothers to their knees. And that's why we saw things like the great resignation. And so Motherly stood very tall in that moment as a resource that was, again, evidence-based and expert-driven. This woman was looking for answers and she didn't have time to sort through the muddled information that was out there. And so she was looking to us to really guide her and her decisions she was making for her family as the architect of health she was looking for empathy. She was looking to see that she wasn't alone. She was looking for comfort and motherly became that haven for her. She was also looking for digital education, especially those women that found themselves pregnant, about to give birth by themselves in a hospital. It was a horrifying proposition for so, so many, in reality, for so many mothers to be. And so motherly became a place where we offered digital education and resources to her to help fill that gap when she could no longer go into the hospital to take her birth class, as an
1: example. I think of all the mothers who in 2020 were alone in delivery rooms and with babies for the first time. It really is just so sad they had to go through that. But thankfully, we've moved past that. we have spoken about the launch of the new Motherly and making some of the content free to registered users. What does that look like? And why did you decide to go in that direction?
0: Something I'm really passionate and excited about. I have a certificate in infant and maternal health and public health from Hopkins, and I always knew that education was a really important social determinant of health. And when we launched Motherly, we knew that we were targeting this super educated demographic and that that was how we were going to grow with this new brand and this new perspective and voice. But 50% of today's children are born on WIC and Medicaid, and we are not going to achieve our mission of empowering mothers to thrive if we are only offering resources like our classes to the mothers that can afford, that have disposable income to do it. And so it felt really important and aligned that we provide resources that can educate moms because every single child deserves a mom that has, in fact, been educated by Motherly. 15 of the Motherly-produced digital education classes that we have, we made them free for all registered users. We also added a feature, which I can't believe hasn't existed until now, which is just to bookmark articles. You're a mom, and how many times you just screenshot an article that then gets lost in your photo albums. And then also our week-by-week guide, Understanding Today's Economic Challenges and Turbulence, we're offering more and more exclusive offers and discounts to our registered users too, which we find our users are finding great value in.
1: I'd love to hear about your background, how you went from consulting into being an entrepreneur, and the skills you thought were really important,
0: and just the switch itself. I was a consultant, as I mentioned, working in defense intelligence and defense organizations in the U.S. government and did not envision at that moment that I would be running a parenting platform. But what happened for me was, as I mentioned earlier, motherhood brought me new superpowers. I was really inspired by motherhood and frankly, frustrated by the white spaces that I was seeing and the lack of innovation, especially back 2012, when I had my first daughter. My husband actually went to business school out in California after he got out of the Navy, When in Rome, when in Silicon Valley, I started to feel very entrepreneurial. And so actually my first company, I invented, patented, and brought to market a baby goods product called the Swingies. My co-founder, Katie Stewart, and I experienced this problem where there weren't enough baby swings and playgrounds. And so like any good mom, I went to Amazon to try to find the product that would solve it and it didn't exist. There wasn't one, and there was nothing under patents. And so we patented our own uh, portable device that converted regular child playground swings into baby swings that you could take with you to playgrounds. And we got that in every Babies RS around the country, kind of had the entrepreneurial itch at that point. And so we licensed it to an outdoor adventure company. And then a couple weeks later in 2015 is when my now co-founder called me. And I just felt like the timing was absolutely right. I had so much knowledge and understanding of business and of growing a business through the Swingies and the Honeybee Child. I also understood how to market to moms. I was a mom. And then I also had all of this great consulting experience, but it was invaluable for me around how to get smart fast and how to context switch and do a lot of things really quickly and to test and iterate, which I think was a really great foundation for entrepreneurship.
1: I love that. I love the fact that you used your professional experience up to that point, your experience as a new mother to create that product and then take that product into this new platform. It sounds like so many things really aligned for you and you were able to just use all of that great experience together. I'm curious if you had any role models as well, helping you think through these things at the time, or maybe other people in your life, even from an earlier stage who were really supportive of you.
0: So my father has always been a big inspiration to me. He is a small business owner in Maryland, where I'm from. And business was talked about at the dinner table. It was never shielded from us. I could see the highs and lows. I saw the persistence that was needed to get through being a business owner. And it didn't feel as out of reach or out of touch for me because of that. I definitely feel like from a very early age, I understood what it took to be an entrepreneur to some level and was always inspired by him. My great-grandmother passed away when I I was around eight years old, and so I didn't know her very well. I have some small memories of her and being frankly, very intimidated by her, but I was in middle school. I had to write about a businesswoman, And I learned through that, that my great grandmother, when her husband had passed away, she took over like in the mid 1900s, she took over running a publicly traded company from the backseat because that's back when women could not be the CEO. And there were all of these things she could never remarry because that was part of it. And I just remember feeling really empowered by the fact that I was living in a different time and I had new opportunities available to me. And so I've always been incredibly inspired by the women before me who have tried to blaze a trail and where society had not quite caught up with our abilities.
1: We've talked a little bit about the pandemic and its impact on mothers. I'm curious about the impact on your business. Did you have to shift things? What did it mean to you from a revenue perspective or an employee perspective? What did you have to grapple with?
0: Navigating the pandemic as a working mother myself and as an employer of primarily working mothers was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. As I said, this brought working mothers to their knees. It brought me to my knees. I moved from California to Utah to keep my kids in school full time in person because mothers. Motherly couldn't have continued if I didn't have that backstop of school for my children. In so many places around the country, that wasn't accessible. While Motherly, we had always been looking at the future of work and trying to build a next generation company for our staff, we were always 100% remote and so flexible. We had our employees were working from home since 2015. So we didn't skip a beat then when everyone went into lockdown, right, and worked from home. But what was different was that previously our mothers and our employees were not working with children home. And so that was really, really challenging. While I believe this generation, this modern generation of mothers have been very intentional about finding greater equity in their home between their partners, the pandemic was a moment of crisis where a lot of gender norms kind of came back into being. And mothers, again, became truly the primary caregiver, and oftentimes her career was put on the back burner. Understand that we were employing a lot of working mothers, Liz and I were very, very explicit with our team that we expected their family unit to prioritize their career and their employment at Motherly as much as their partners if they were blessed to have one. And so we talked with them about understanding that there would need to be trade-offs, that the father might need to be doing some childcare at different points, and the mother's, and we offered as much flexibility as we could, but we really empowered our team to prioritize their careers during this time too, and to not let it fully backslide in the way that it did for so many.
1: That's so interesting. A lot of companies definitely talked about flexibility for their employees, but it sounds like you took it further by specifically talking to your employees about the conversations they would have with their partners around their own careers. So that's so interesting. How did that go? Were employees grateful? Were they nervous of those conversations? What did that look like?
0: We were having them in our own homes, our executive team. And so we could empathize and understand how challenging they were. Also, we knew that we were paying our employees at a level where some of them were the primary breadwinner. And in fact, our 2022 State of Motherhood survey showed that 47% of today's mothers are the primary breadwinner in their family, earning 50% or more of the household income. My understanding in talking with the team is that, yes, these are uncomfortable conversations to have and that it felt like a time where you had to make really hard decisions and sometimes prioritize one person, perhaps the person earning more money's career over others, but they were really grateful to be empowered and pushed a little, right, to have these conversations and to ensure that they were being valued for their contributions to that household income and to understand the work that we were doing at Motherly was important and frankly, if anything, even more important during the pandemic.
1: It's amazing that you thought about that and provided that support really end-to-end for employees. So you mentioned you were remote from the start as a company. Also, that your husband is in the Navy, so you're a military spouse. How did that contribute to the way you set up the company? How did just being a military spouse and presumably moving around or having the need for flexibility really contribute to those decisions for your company?
0: was the basis for the decision, frankly. So both Liz and I, my co-founder and I, have husbands that went to the Naval Academy and then served and spent time away from us when we had young children. And we saw a couple different things happen. One, we saw that the military still has more men than women in it. And so we saw that so often as you'd get your new orders for where you had to move, that the woman would have to give up her job. In order to follow and move around. And the military does try to help find new jobs, but they're often jobs and not careers, if that makes sense. And so we wanted to create a space for not just military spouses, but for anyone really to have the ability to move where they wanted to move, where the world would take them, whether it was the military or a partner's job in another industry, so that they could have that flexibility to maintain their career and to grow their career. The second is that when I was doing consulting as a new mom, I was driving everywhere and traveling so much much. And we saw how that commute time really cut into family time and into bonding time. And ultimately even into the little bit of time moms have for self-care. And so to cut out that commute time for mothers felt like such a gift too. And I'll never forget, we hired a head of sales several years ago. And a couple weeks into working with Motherly, her daughter said, I really love your new job. You're always here for dinner now. And those things matter. I mean, you hear me still talk about that with my father 30 years later. So those things matter. We wanted to be able to give that gift to our parents. And we could never have known that a pandemic was coming that would force everyone to do that, but it was embedded in our culture. And so we understood how to do it in a way that actually contributed to productivity versus taking away from it.
1: That's great. You were at the forefront of that before everybody else in the pandemic. Jill, let's talk about some research that Motherly does, because I'm really curious about your current findings. You've recently done the annual State of Motherhood Survey, which you've done for many years now and really have just a wonderful population of survey takers. Tell us about some of the findings that you've recently put out from the latest report.
0: Well, just to context set first, Motherly does run an annual survey. This is our sixth annual year. That's the largest statistically significant study of its kind of U.S. mothers. And so we get about ten to 20,000 women, depending on the year, to take a very lengthy survey. And then we do the hard work of weighting that data to the U.S. census demographic data to ensure that we're really being representative. This is really solid data that we share. And we make open source because we see ourselves at Motherly as the voice of this generation. And we're looking to empower our audience and their allies to enact change across areas where mothers need support. And probably interesting to you is to know that the number one kind of key finding from this year's 2023 state of motherhood survey was that the lack of and costs of childcare are continuing to create financial stress and are holding moms back from the workforce. We saw that the top reasons cited why mothers are choosing to stay home with their children. We saw that 18% of mothers in our sample size this year chose to either leave the workforce or change jobs. And the number. One reason that they did that was to stay home with their children, about 28%. And another 15% cited a lack of childcare as their reason for doing that. And to bring these women back into the workforce, which, by the way, is an economic imperative, because as we've discussed, today's mothers are the most educated cohort in the peer group. And so we need them in the economy to be competitive as an economy internationally. And so this is no longer a nice-to-have to to recruit and retain and advance women in the workforce. It's an economic imperative. And our mothers are very clearly saying that to bring them back to the workforce, they need flexible work schedules, 64% said that, and affordable childcare care 54%.
1: So it is an economic issue to your point. What did you see in terms of the findings around personal finances and how women felt about their financial health?
0: This is a little concerning this year, and I think not a surprise. The economy has been rather turbulent lately, and we are seeing significant improvement in financial well-being as women and mothers move from the 18 to 26 age group up a bit, but into the late 20s. But we're not really seeing steady improvement with age over time. And I think we've all heard that The millennials may be the first generation that is not going to do as well as their parents did. And we're seeing that show up in a lot of different ways. One is when it comes to savings goals. These moms are reporting that they are really conflicted in how they're prioritizing their savings goals. They want to save for their child's education. They want to get out of debt. They want to purchase a home. They want to set aside money for retirement. And all of those things are jockeying for first place when they say what's most important to them.
1: Well, I think it's a really great reminder that the needs are still there. They're very significant. And collectively, we have to make sure women are getting the information that they need and the community so that they realize they're not alone with these things.
0: Absolutely. I think it helps for women to see this data, to know that they're not alone in this, and that hopefully this data can also empower employers to make changes, as well as our government, to really see that the foundation of society is mothers, and for us to see that they are concerned and making changes that do not bode well for this country economically.
1: So let's talk about a few other things that are going on in your life. First of all, we saw that you became a court-appointed special advocate, What is that exactly? Tell us about that role.
0: The CASA program exists across the United States in different counties, typically, in cities. And it is a recognition that there are many foster children that are having more challenges than a caseworker or that their guardian ad litem, their attorney, can really cover for them. And so it's also noting that oftentimes children get lost in the process in the foster program. And so CASAs are there to truly be the advocate for the child. And so we go through training. We are appointed by the court. We have full access to information. We are there to meet with the child a couple times a month and again, be their voice in the court process, which can be incredibly intimidating and to ensure that their needs and wants are actually being brought to the forefront of these conversations that are being had about the future of their lives. I've always felt a calling to being a foster parent and it's at this stage with nine and 11 year old daughters and my husband, it's a family decision. Should we come and do that? And I recognize with the intensity of motherly and travel and things that come up with it, that this is maybe not the season for that right now. And so when I learned about the CASA program, it felt so aligned with my values and what I wanted to do in a way to contribute and really impact a child's life, hopefully for a very long time.
1: That is so amazing. That is a really powerful, meaningful thing for the children whose lives you help and I think is so aligned with what you're doing at Motherly. So it's amazing. I hope listeners think about that and try to explore that wherever they happen to live too. So let's talk about the health front for you, if you don't mind. You were diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, several years ago. How does that affect your life and how you operate your business and your well-being?
0: Yes, I was diagnosed almost exactly seven years ago. It was on St. Patrick's Day. It was three months after we had launched Motherly. Health doesn't wait for good timing. It was a massive blow and shift in my identity. I had two very young children at the time. My husband was just out of business school then. Motherly was just launched. It was really challenging. One of the darker days, I'd say. Now, seven years later, I can look back and see it as a gift. The reason I can see it as a gift, though, is it's important to acknowledge a lot of privilege that comes with that. One, I was diagnosed very quickly. I had great access to medical care, which is not the case for everyone. I had insurance to pay for that medical care, which is a privilege. I had family support, and I had a network that was able to help me navigate it very quickly. And then lastly, I was educated, which came with a level of entitlement to advocate for myself. Women's medical challenges are so often swept aside, especially... Especially if you're a new mom. We're so often told that it's just because you just became a mom or like, oh, just monitor it. It'll be fine. With a disease like multiple sclerosis, which is, it can layer the symptoms over itself. Speed to diagnosis and treatment is incredibly important. And so I was very lucky to be diagnosed within 10 days of the onset of my symptoms. And it is a gift because one, I have zero symptoms. I just did my blood work this morning. Every six months I go in for an infusion that has really stopped MS in its tracks, frankly which is amazing. And so I've had no new symptoms, no issues, and I'm truly thriving with MS. The reason it's a gift is because it forced me and still does to prioritize my health and well-being, which is something that mothers often don't do. We put ourselves last. And at Motherly, we believe that when a mother thrives, a family and community can thrive. And we are at the core. And so when we let ourselves, we put ourselves last over and over again, our family cannot thrive. Our businesses cannot thrive and the community. community can't. And so for me, it has forced me to say what my non-negotiables are from a health perspective. And so I sleep, I eat well, I make sure I exercise at least three times a week. And I really have created guardrails around those things that so often moms can push away because there's always another priority that we're faced with. There's always something else we feel we should be doing. And so this diagnosis gave me permission I shouldn't need permission, but it gave me permission to prioritize my health.
1: I mean, you had no choice to really do that if you wanted to stay well. It's remarkable the treatment you've had. I'm so glad to hear that. It's very rare. I think you would hear that kind of diagnosis and quick treatment. So great news all around. Jill, in 2019, you wrote about dads saying they're doing their jobs by being equal partners. And I think a lot of moms feel like they still see their partners, their husbands, get credit for doing all the things they should be doing anyways. So I want to know, do you think cultural shifts are happening enough where we will see more dads just do the kinds of things you would expect in an equal household?
0: So this is very apropos since my husband and I just had a resetting conversation around this two nights ago. When I wrote that, I think everything is very much still true. I think that millennials and Gen X and I think this kind of generation that has younger children right now. I think there's a lot more intentionality around Finding equity in the relationship and making it a true partnership. I do believe that we all deserve credit for trying to build a family structure intentionally in a way that is very different, most likely, than we were raised. As I mentioned, being raised in the 80s, like, I don't think my dad ever changed a diaper, frankly. And that just doesn't cut it in today's world. And so I do think that not just fathers, but mothers, we deserve credit for trying to build something different. And to your question, have we really made enough cultural changes in this area? I would offer that we were on an amazing trajectory and that COVID set us back significantly because, as I mentioned earlier, what happens when we are in a crisis situation is we revert back to our default norms and we revert back to what feels comfortable. And what feels comfortable is how we were raised. And so what feels comfortable is a lot of gender stereotypes and norms around caregivers and around women and mothers specifically. And so I think we undid a lot of the progress that we've made. I am starting to see and hear us build back from where we landed during the pandemic. And as I mentioned, my husband and I just had this resetting conversation the other day because this is hard to do. And that's why I said we all deserve credit for it. We will divide things out in a way that feels equal and aligned for us. And then over time, it slides back. And then we have to have a resetting conversation. In the early days, those were angry conversations, I will say. Now there's an understanding that this is the process, right? That it's two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, but that progress can look like that. And that these cannot be a one and done conversation. It has to be a continuous conversation. And I do believe that it has to happen at the family level level, at the cultural level, at the employer level, at companies, and then ultimately at the governmental level. I really think we have to find ways to empower mothers to have this by things like affordable childcare and having paid family leave accessible to all. And we need to see employers promoting that as well. You have to be attacking it from all angles, but I do feel like we've made progress and there is much more to be made.
1: Yeah, I don't think this is a one-and-done conversation in the household. How can it be? Things change all the time, your needs, your children's needs, your own job, what you need to commit at any one period of time. So I think the important thing is to have that line of communication open with your partner so that you can always go back to that without that resentment, which, believe me, I think we all feel it. I feel it too. Can't just set things and forget it. And I think that's one reason why at our company, what we try to do to help that, to your point that takes companies too, when we have secondary parental leave for parents, that is so important to really signify to a spouse that you are there too. You are there to have that equal role in the house. And that is where the company can come in to really help you do that. So I hope more companies promote that time and really encourage people to take that time. So when things get rough for you, being a CEO, a mother, a spouse, somebody who wants to take care of herself as well. How do you reground yourself? How do you reset yourself when needed and need to get on track?
0: So for the first time in about the last six months, I can finally say meditation is an important part of that for me. I took a transcendental meditation class years ago, and I was overwhelmed by the concept of needing to do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And so I didn't do it because I held myself to the standard that I had to do it all the way or not at all, and that it wouldn't work. And in August of 2022, I finally said, you know what, let's just take those tools. I learned how to do it. Let's do it for 10 minutes a day and see what happens. And it's been life-changing. I feel so much more grounded. I feel that inner calm and I feel like my inner voice is stronger now than my outer voice. And so that's been a really important way of grounding me. The other is I do Legree, which is a type of workout that is Pilates on steroids and the most physically challenging thing I've done, but it also is meditative because it's so hard. I try to do it three times a week and I find that really grounding because I don't have time to let the voice talk to me during that silence, my phone and all of that. So those are the things that I typically will do to really ground myself and ensure that I'm staying true to who I am. The lastly would be, which I've not been good enough about getting outside, being outside in nature in some way and trying to do that every day. I love all of that. I'm going to have to try that exercise.
1: How do you think about ambition? And as a CEO of Motherly, which is all about helping mothers, presumably with their ambitions, I'm really curious as to see your take on it. Would you consider yourself ambitious? And what are you ambitious to do and to strive for?
0: Yes, I am ambitious. And I do not believe that ambition, especially as associated with women or mothers, should be a dirty word. And it's felt like it is. And so I do think it's important to model that ambition is okay. It's good. What I value is evolving and changing and how I measure my success as an ambitious woman is evolving and changing. I'm ambitious to be the best mother I can possibly be, the best spouse that I can be, but it's generally aligned around your career in business in some way. And I am absolutely ambitious when it comes to that. Motherly is a venture-backed business. Less than 2% of venture dollars go to women, let alone mothers. And I'm very proud that Motherly has been venture-backed and that we have taken on and been at the forefront of that. We are not a nonprofit. We exist to achieve our mission, for sure. We are very, very mission-oriented, but we are a business that intends to make money. And I try to model that with our staff and our employees. Over time, what I am ambitious increasingly about is not just the financial side of success there, it's really about the impact of it. And knowing that the impact that we've had with Motherly to really engage 30 million women every month around the world and help them to feel empowered and to live their best life as a mother And a woman is really critical to my identity and who I am at this point. And I'm ambitious about the ability to continue to grow that impact.
1: And can you talk about how you role model this for your daughters, how you role model being a professional woman, really balancing a lot of things?
0: That's really important in our family with two daughters. And that's why my husband's supporting me and finding partnership and equity in our relationship as two working parents is really important too, that we're modeling that for our daughters. I've always been very purposeful with my daughters when they ask, why can't you do this? Or mommy, you're working too much. Because of course that happens. I'm a CEO running a business. I explain to them that I work at Motherly and I do the work that I do for a lot of reasons. One is yes, because it financially contributes to our family And that's really important, and that has value. Two, that I do it because I'm good at it. I'm good at my job and I want them to see that. Three, I do it because it has massive impact. And so we talk about the impact that it has in the world. And then the last reason is I like it. I like what I do. And so that's why I do this job. I think a lot of children are raised to hear their parents complain about their jobs and their careers. I want my children to see it's certainly a blessing that I'm able to do something that I do love to do and not everyone can find that. But I want them to see that it is possible to have impact and to financially contribute and to care and love what you do.
1: Well, it's very clear you love what you do. It really jumps out here. And I would just say as our last question, and this might be hard because mothers come in all different shapes, sizes, and stripes. What would you tell mothers of today? What advice do you want to leave them with?
0: To trust themselves and to also know and feel deep inside that motherhood is an opportunity to nurture, not lose themselves.
1: Jill, I love that. Thank you so much. I cannot wait to see how Motherly continues to grow from here. And I cannot wait till you hit the tweens and above. I will be looking for that information. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jill. The data from the 2023 State of Motherhood Report is sobering, but I'm grateful that Women on the Move is providing resources to support women's financial health. You can find the State of Motherhood Report on their website, mother.ly. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com WOTM. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.